This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A United Methodist bishop is in violation of church law because she is openly gay. That was the ruling late last week from the Judicial Council of the United Methodist Church. The bishop is Karen Oliveto, who leads the church's Mountain Sky region, which includes Colorado. She was elected to that position last fall. The bishop is on the phone. Welcome to the program. So good to be back with you, Ryan. Thank you. So last Friday, this Judicial Council found six to three, quote, it is not lawful to consecrate a self-avowed practicing homosexual bishop. I want to say, though, that you haven't been removed, and according to church officials, you remain in, quote, good standing, unquote. What's your understanding of Friday's ruling? It was a very uh, long and convoluted ruling. It was 19 pages, single-spaced type. Uh, They found a couple of things that were totally uh, valid and legal, and that was my nomination, election, and assignment to the Mountain Sky area. Uh, Where they really struggled was around my consecration. However, my, uh, I am in good standing. I can face, actually, I, a, a complaint has already been filed, but I uh, am still bishop of the Mountain Sky area, very excited to be the bishop of that area, and really committed to the work we've begun to do there. There is a, a lot of sort of bureaucracy here and a lot of levels of... Um, sort of supervising, but as you say, a complaint had to be filed to trigger the next step in the process. So who ultimately might decide your fate, and what are the possibility possibilities, the possible outcomes? Right. So, so the people who will be... Uh, a complaint has been filed, and we have a regional body, which is larger than the Mountain Sky area, but it's called the Western Jurisdiction. And there is a body called the Episcopacy Committee that oversees the work of we five bishops in the West. And they will be processing the complaint. In all things, we in the United Methodist Church try to reach just resolution, and that is where all parties agree on um, how to put to rest a complaint. And that's what we're what we're working towards. And what is the complaint in particular? Uh, well, it's that complaint uh, is quite long as well. So uh, they're just, uh, I'm, I'm not at liberty to discuss that, but um, it is, we are taking it very seriously and moving through that prayerfully and in a way that we, that I hope that will build up the church further the... rather than divide it. The initial petition against your consecration came from the South Central jurisdiction of the United Methodist Church. Is that the same jurisdiction filing this complaint? No, no. The, okay. the complaint came from within the West, um, it, and that's most unusual. And that was part of the the issue that the Judicial Council took up, that we don't—one jurisdiction really doesn't have— the option of intruding on the election of another bishop. And, uh, you know, what I think you find in the decision, the ruling about uh, about that question of law, is that the Judicial Council, which is our Supreme Court, is as divided as the rest of the United Methodist Church regarding 
the role and ministry of LGBTQI people in the church. And and let's get to the the fundamentals here um, beyond the process. Could this lead the church to a schism, do you think? Well, my prayer is that we maintain our unity. I think the question is, how do we live into difference, difference of opinion? I think difference is a healthy sign. And in fact, it's a part of our United Methodist tradition that we can hold the tension of difference. It's actually a sign of God's creativity. And I think we need to remind ourselves that unity is found in Jesus Christ, who broke down the walls of who's in and who's out and unites us in love. I'll say that the United Methodist Church is the third largest in the country with almost 13 million members. Uh, It didn't fully integrate African-Americans as bishop until the late 1960s. So do, do you look to the history of the church and see that compromise is possible, do you think? Actually, it didn't. Or, uh, women weren't bishops until the 1980s. But you see, throughout our history, there were people who were considered outsiders and people who were considered insiders. Uh, African Americans were actually, when the church came together in the 30s, the northern part of the church and the southern part of the church, which split around the Civil War over slavery, in order to compromise, and I. And I that is not a positive word, um, in order to compromise uh, racism and accommodate racism, we we had a, a separate jurisdiction just for African Americans. When the United Methodist Church was born in 1968, we did away with that. And so there was integration. But then women were later... Uh, had full ordination rights. So I think there is, we continue to respond to God's movement in the world and how God speaks through people who we often overlook or discount. And I think that's the moment we're in now. Is there the possibility that you could be removed? That's always a possibility in the process. However, I am coming back. Right now I'm in Dallas at the Council of Bishops meeting, the meeting with Uh, bishops from around the world. I am so looking forward to coming back to the Mountain Sky area. I have fallen head over heels in love with the clergy and laity, with the vibrant ministries that are going on, and with the vision for the future that God has put in our hearts. So I'm, I'm all in. I want to say that this case has meant your private life has become very public, because one question at the trial was not just whether you are gay, but whether you are a practicing homosexual. That is, if you have marital relations. How has it been to have something so intimate become so public? Well, one, it wasn't a trial. It was a hearing, so I did not have voice in this. I was not on trial. And, and um, I, I do think that the, the, the one thing that very much concerns me in the ruling of the Judicial Council is that they have they have expanded the the ruling of what constitutes self-avowed and practicing. Before it was a very narrow definition that someone had to admit to to genital contact with a member of the same gender. Now they're saying that if you possess a marriage certificate, that is self that that represents self-avowed and practicing. So this this tells a whole group of people that your love is, is being questioned by the church. And, and, 
as I read the Bible, God is love and love is of God. And for us to miss love between two people who have committed their life to one another, I think the church then um, is, has a blind spot that needs to be removed. Were you able, perhaps, uh, while you were at the hearing or before or after, to talk to people who see this differently from you um, and, and to understand their sure. perspective? No, I, you know, I, again, I, I value difference. I grow when I'm in relationship with people who don't believe the same thing I believe. That doesn't threaten me. In fact, it, it, it encourages my growth. So I, I have people in the Mountain Sky area who, who, who aren't of one mind regarding the role of LGBTQI people in the life and ministry of the church, who actually question my validity as their bishop. But I am their bishop. I am committed to supporting their ministry. I'm, I am committed to hearing their, their relationship with Jesus Christ, and I want to grow with them. I want to say that uh, your next scheduled sermon, I believe, is May 14th at the Belong Church in downtown Denver. Do you think that this will come up when you address uh, those gathered? Well, here's the beautiful thing. I, I'm going to be doing a baptism for the, for the, um, the pastor and, and his family, their new, newest baby. I look at that child. Who knows who that child will grow to be? But my my commitment is that child always knows he is the beloved child of God. God loves him with a love that will never let him go. And that's the message I will be preaching. And that's the one I want everybody to know, all your listeners, especially LGBTQI people who might be questioning because they've heard from from pulpits that, that, um, that they are outside the household of faith. Actually, God's love envelops them. God made them who they are, and and God will never let them go. Karen Olivetto, Bishop for the Mountain Sky Area of the United Methodist Church, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Longmire, the Netflix show about a brooding Wyoming sheriff, will air for a sixth and final season this year. Author Craig Johnson, though, who created the character, will keep writing. His novella, The Highwayman, is just out in paperback. It's a ghost story. Or is it? Maybe there's a perfectly logical explanation for all the weird things happening. Sheriff Walt Longmire certainly isn't jumping to conclusions. I spoke with Craig Johnson last year. Craig, welcome back to the program. Good to be here, Ryan. You always hit the marrow exactly of my books. I am so proud of you. Oh, that's very kind. (laughs) It it helps to read them. Uh, Your book revolves around a state trooper, Bobby Womack. Mm -hmm. Yes, named for the Mm singer-songwriter. And round about midnight, a fellow trooper named Rosie hears his voice on the highway patrol radio. There's just one thing about patrolman Bobby Womack is that he is... He's been dead since 1979. He's been dead for years. So why is his voice coming across the highway patrol radio? How, how did he die? 
Um, he actually died in a, in a crash, like in a very fiery crash um, in the northern tunnel of uh, the Wind River Scenic Byway, which is an interesting little portion of Wyoming there in the center, you know, just above Shoshone to south of Thermopolis. But um, it's an interesting place in the sense that, you know, from the Boyson Reservoir up to the Wedding of Waters uh, near Thermopolis, you've got this Class 5 Whitewater Rapids River that's carved its way through like about 2,500 feet of solid granite walls on either side. And I had this idea – from uh, actually from Charles Dickens, like there's a little short story that he wrote called The Signalman. And it's only about 11 pages long or so, and it's on the internet. Everybody can look it up. Okay. The problem was it, it really didn't update in the face of modern technology, you know, with GPS positioning, computers, radios, you know, cell phones and all this. I couldn't really do the same story again. But then I was talking to uh, a commandant up there on the Wyoming Highway Patrol, Jim Thomas, who's a great friend of mine. And uh, and I was – I don't know how it, was, it came up, but we were talking about the Wind River Canyon. And he said, well, you know what the old timers call the canyon? And I said, no, what? And he goes, no man's land. And he said, because up until about 10 years ago when they – put a tower actually in the canyon, um, radio frequency wouldn't go down in there. And so whenever a highway patrolman went into the canyon, you didn't hear from him again, like until 34 you know, minutes later. Fascinating. In other words, that small slice of the world in Wyoming really was stuck in time in terms of communication. It was, and it was the only place that this story could take place, <laughs> to <Yeah>. be honest. <laughs> so you're, you're a main character, or I suppose one of your main characters, in addition, of course, to Sheriff Longmire, Bobby Womack. Um, he was a Arapaho. He was. And uh, we should say that American Indians populate all of your books. Mm -hmm. Uh, You write that it's unusual. He was both Indian and a highway patrolman. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's 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 an odd, you know, uh, know, job for, you know, especially the Arapaho and the Shoshone to kind of take on like that. But it does happen like that. And uh, I don't know. I mean, there were certain aspects of the storyline that needed, you know, uh, the the, the kind of understanding that being that close to the Wind River uh, Reservation, the story kind of needed that a little bit. And so I started doing some research, you know, on some of the legends and all these things. And I think there's a actually a portion, you know, of the book, I think, you know, where Kimama, who's this you know, Shoshone Arapaho uh, Shea woman like that, basically looks at Walt and says, you know, you know how he died like that. And Walt says, well, he died in a car rack. And, you know, and she goes, no, he died in fire. And whenever the embers of his life begin to fade away, like at the wind, the high plains wind picks him up, carries him around the world and redeposits him in the canyon again. And, uh, you know, it's a legend that, that this, this character, you know, has been haunting um, the canyon, you know, for the last, you know, 40, 50 years. Like that. And, um, you know, it, they try and get uh, Rosie Wayman, like that, this this highway patrolman who's getting these radio signals to go in for some psychological evaluation. Right. Instead. They think she's crazy. They do. They do. You know, which is, you know, a, you know, probably a rational response, you know, to someone who's saying they're getting, you know, radio 1078 calls, you know, officer needs assistance calls from a dead highway patrolman. So uh, it, it kind of made for an interesting storyline. And I thought... But, you know, well, okay, this will kind of take Walton and particularly Henry in some places maybe that they haven't been before. And, and the reason I said, you know, it's nice because you hit the marrow of each one of the stories is, is that, you know, the, the real, you know, key element to the storyline is, is that, you know, it's a ghost story, but is it a ghost story? So it's – Or can this, this all just be explained? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's a portion, you know, where Walt and Henry are standing there in front of the motel where they're staying in Thermopolis. And Walt goes through and just basically gives a rational, you know, reasoning for all of the, the spottings of Bobby Womack over the last 40 years. Years, you know, there's the family that was, you know, their car went off the road and they've been sitting in the snow.
know, and they got the car running, so it's carbon monoxide poisoning. There's the hippie kid that got the ride. Who knows what he was smoking? It goes through all of these rational reasons as to why it is that these things could have been explained. Because it's not just that his voice comes over the radio, but people have uh, accounts of seeing this, oh, yes. this dead trooper. Oh, yes. you, you've mentioned Henry. That's Henry Standing Bear, who's really Sheriff Walt Longmire's sidekick. And until they enter the picture, Rosie, this other patrol uh, member, is the only one who hears the haunting radio mm-hmm. traffic. Mm-hmm. She's a highly capable officer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this voice makes her wonder if she's going crazy. Do you believe in ghosts, Craig Johnson? Oh, I believe that there are things out there that may be a little bit more than, than what we are, you know, uh, fully aware of. I mean, whenever I'm standing around talking about buddy Marcus Red Thunder, who's, you know, kind of like the model, you know, for Henry in the books. So he's um, a real life person yeah, that you know. Yeah, it is. Like, and, uh, you know, whenever I'm sitting around talking with him, one of the things I'm fully aware of is, is that, like, my kind of people have only been in this part of the world for a couple of hundred years. His have been here for a couple of thousand. And so they might be a little more aware, you know, of what's going on around us. And that's kind of exemplified, you know, with the Henry character because, you know, as Walt's trying to give all of these rationales for all of these sightings of, you know, of Bobby Womack, you know, he gets to the end and Henry looks at him and says, yes, you found a, you know, wonderful reasons for, you know, all of these reasons why it is that, you know, Bobby Womack could have existed and you've, you've given all of them except for the one that would explain all of them, that he actually does exist. That there is something supernatural. Mm. Have you had supernatural uh, you know, I guess I have, like, a, to an extent, you know, I mean, you know, things that have happened to me that are just out of the corner of your eye, you know, and that's kind of where I like to write the book is just out of the corner of your eye. I don't want to go all Stephen King, you know, I don't want to do anything <laughs> like that. I, I just kind of like, you know, playing in those margins where you're just not quite sure. And that's, you know, what the, the, the tightrope, I think, that you have to walk um, in these type of stories like that, where it just you know keeps the reader going all the way through till the very last sentence or maybe the very last word of the book. As you said, this. This is set in the Wind River Canyon, a series of tunnels there. And this is in central Wyoming along Highway 20, as you said, near Thermopolis. When you write about real places, uh, given your following, which is uh, which is enormous, um, especially because of the TV show adding a whole new audience, do you fear that locations will become spoiled? In other words, now now this canyon is going to become a tourist destination, it right? It is. But, you know, boy, I'll tell you what. The, the, the Wyoming Office of Tourism is really kind of happy with me as a, as a general effect. But, <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, you know, there are always going to be those 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 mitigating factors, you know, like – and it's called distance is what it's called. You know, and Ryan, if you were jumping your car and head for the, you know, the canyon, it, it'll take you about four hours to get up there. Like, and, uh, and some of that's some pretty desolate area to drive through. And so Wyoming always has that, you know, that, that America's out – back, you know, kind of, you know, buffer um, for places getting overrun. You know, I mean, that's one of the aspects that it's going to take a while to get there. The other is just, come on, let's be serious. We have two seasons in Wyoming. We've got winter and the 4th of July. Like, and it usually flurries <laughs> on the 4th of July. So I, I don't worry about it too You're much. You're not too worried. All right. So will this novella eventually become an episode of the Longmire Netflix series. Difficult to say. Like that, um, you know, they use bits and pieces of the books, um, ideas, you know, from the books and all that. I mean, one of the first conversations that I remember having um, with the producers of Longmire, they said, you know, your books don't break down easily into a forty-two minute um, teleplay. And I was like, thank you. Yeah, I that's appreciate a compliment. That. <laughs> I thought so too. <laughs> I thought, you know what? If they did, I don't think anybody should be reading them for guys' sakes. You know, <laughs> so you know, the difficulty is, is they they kind of have to take the, the bits and pieces. And uh, there was like, I guess it was the the opening episode sort of the second season, which used, you know, almost completely from one of my books, uh, uh, Hell is Empty. Um, but, you know, they're, they're just an awful lot of sub-story and an awful lot of other you know, effects that they have to, you know, kind of leave out. 
Yeah, this one would require some real effects because it there. Are, it seems that there. Are, this is a fiery series of tunnels, mm-hmm. as, as you have described them. A big theme in this book, I think, is the importance of being understood. Mm-hmm. Because this uh, dead or you know half dead trooper um, passed away with some confusion about whether he was a good guy or mm-hmm. not. Absolutely, like, and I think that that's you know that's where the fun of uh, you know writing contemporary westerns, you know, maybe with a little bit more of a social meaning, kind of comes into play. Like, it isn't all black and white hats, you know. It's it's gray hats, you know. Or as hmm. T. S. Eliot used to say, you know, all cats is gray in the dark, you know. So it's all... kind of fun to be in those margins, like, and work in those areas where you know you're just not quite sure. Like, and uh, you know, hopefully the story you know kind of comes to a conclusion on that. So this is a novella. Your first, your next, rather, full-length book is due out in September. It is. It's called An Obvious Fact. It is. Give us it, a, it might sound familiar, that particular quote. It's actually from Arthur Conan Doyle, and it's uh, one of the famous quotes from Sherlock Holmes, that there is nothing quite so deceptive as an obvious fact. And the reason it's named that, why I'm using Arthur Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes quotes, is because uh, Henry actually picks up a copy of the annotated short stories of Arthur Conan Doyle from Walt's you know, his bookshelf as they're heading out to go to Hewlett, Wyoming, up in the northeast corner of Wyoming, a little town of 396 brave souls and a police force of... One, um, which would be probably pretty good, you know, when you look at the crime rates, you know, in the high plains, you know, one cop per 400 people. That's not, not a bad, bad. ratio. Okay. The only problem being it's a little sister city over in South Dakota, right across the border is a little town called Sturgis. And, oh, where um, the motorcycle rally is. Yes. And just last year, they had the largest motorcycle rally in the world with over a million bikers. And uh, about half of them, about 500,000 or the entire population of Wyoming, um, drift over into Wyoming so that they can ride by Devil's Tower, a geographic feature that's right there where Hewlett is. And so all I could think was, you know, half a million bikers, um, you know, one cop. That was probably something Walt and Henry and most certainly Vic need to be involved with. Something is going to happen that isn't good, <laughs> given that scenario. That's always what you can count on. I mean, it's interesting that you uh, have written about a state that is so thinly populated and yet has no shortage of stories. Oh, no, none whatsoever. I mean, I kind of had to broaden, you know, Walt's jurisdictional applications a little bit, you know, because after like about the second book, I started thinking, okay, well, now how many people can you kill off in the least populated county, (laughs) in the least populated state in America (laughs) before it it starts getting kind of ridiculous? And so that's when I thought, you know what, why don't let let Walt's, you know, uh, his reputation precede him a bit, you know, and allow him to, to go to other parts of the state and uh, maybe investigate, you know, other other jurisdictions. All right. An obvious fact is the next book. Thanks so much for being you with bet, us. You bet, Ryan. My pleasure. Always is. Western mystery writer Craig Johnson lives in Cross, Wyoming. His novella, The Highwayman, is out in paperback now. You can read the first chapter at cprnews.org. Johnson's character, Sheriff Walt Longmire, inspired the Netflix show Longmire. And the sixth season coming in the fall will be its last Craig Johnson will be at Barnes & Noble in Boulder June 2nd and the tattered cover on Colfax in Denver June 3rd. Tomorrow evening, CPR Classical will air a recent production of Opera Colorado's As One. The main character, Hannah, is transgender and played by two people, a baritone and a mezzo-soprano. There are 
librettist Mark Campbell created the opera, with composer Laura Kaminsky and co-librettist Kimberly Reed. I spoke with Mark Campbell back in February. And Mark, welcome to the program. Thank you. What made you want to work on As One? <laughs> um, I, it, this project actually started with the composer Laura Kaminsky. And uh, she approached me to write the libretto. She had uh, lined up the singers to perform it. She had lined up a string quartet, had many ideas, but she lacked a story. Uh, I met with her and uh, Kimberly Reed, who is a f- mostly a filmmaker. Kimberly had made a movie called Prodigal Sons, which I urge everyone to see. Uh, the three of us met. They did not have a story. They did not have a libretto. And I just turned to Kimberly and said... Um, just tell me some of your early experiences as a transgender person. And um, she started by mentioning, by, by uh, discussing an anecdote. Uh, when she was 12 and she had a newspaper route, and one day she just decided to do it in a blouse. And I turned to Laura and I said, that is a song. This is what we live for. This is what we, we, we writers live to hear so that we can turn this into material and um I went home that night and started thinking, wow, we could write a whole opera based very loosely on Kimberly's own experiences. Um, And I asked Kimberly to co-write the libretto, and that's how the um, story was born. Uh, So we actually were able to speak with uh, composer Laura Kaminsky, and she says she got the idea for this opera after reading a news article herself and uh, that it just felt like it was a project she had to take on. I felt like this was a real story to be told and just somehow it felt operatic. I'd never thought about writing an opera before, but this sort of really did come to me as a, I have to write this opera. As we said, two singers perform the part of Hannah, the main character. Was it tricky to write for one main character who speaks in two voices? Um, no, not at all, um, because uh, I was working with Kimberly, and, and we collaborated so closely on the text, uh, and we made a decision early on, first of all, that we wanted to create a real character. Often, uh, subjects like this turn into issue operas, and they're, they're therefore not very interesting. Uh, we wanted to create a real person, and somehow we just clicked on this story of Hannah, um, we also knew that we wanted to write an opera that had a great deal of humor in it. We wanted everyone to understand this person. Um, that was one of our earliest decisions. Another is that we would write text, but we would not assign certain lines to what would typically be a male response to something or typically be a female response to something. We found a way of blending both of these voices together. And Laura also, as she started setting the text... Um, joined in in that discussion, and it became very fluid. I love a moment in this opera. Um, Hannah has a kind of epiphany. Um, she's looking up the word transgender at the library, and she thumbs through words like transatlantic and Transylvania. <laughs> you know, she's nearing it in the card catalog. <laughs> Travel, further, travel. 
This is such a big step for the character to even look up the word. How did that come together, that part of the libretto? Oh, gosh. Um, it's very interesting. I wrote a draft of that song to know, and I... I um, Kim, the, the, my, Kim grew up in Helena, Montana, and the library there is actually called the Lewis and Clark Library. And that was a detail that I loved because it's named after explorers. Um, I wrote a draft of that, and then Kim and I just went back and forth and changed it. I just I, – I, I put my – I mean, I, I guess channeled Hannah at that moment. But I would say that Kim also spoke to me and said, you know, you're a gay man. You must remember that first time when you realize that you are not the only person in the universe who is gay. Uh, and when she directed me in that way, it was very easy to write this moment. I understood Hannah completely. Hmm. And, and let me just say, once again, Kimberly Reed, your co-librettist, uh, is trans. And mm-hmm. she also did visuals for this uh, chamber opera as one. Um. A transgender main character who thinks about her identity, you know, could be a a touchy, intense issue to take on. How did you keep this story from feeling too heavy, though? I mean, how do you balance the struggle of being transgender with the beauty that life might hold? Oh, I love that question. Um, You just answered the question uh, because so many people concentrate on the torture and the, and, and the, the, the difficulty um, of realizing yourself. Uh, I don't even use the transition, uh, the word transition. It's, it's really self-realization. Um, it's, it's not that it's an easy thing, uh, but we wanted to present it as a not difficult thing. That really doesn't make sense, does it? I'm a writer. I can't find words. Um, <laughs> we wanted people to understand it on a universal level. Uh, one thing that we really love is that people come to this audience, audience members come to the show and say, well, gosh, I've had a journey that's not unlike Hannah's. Um, and we're very happy about that. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a universal story about a very specific person who goes through very specific things. Uh, if we had just created a political issue um, out of this opera, then it would have been really dull, and I think we would have turned off our audience. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is the Pulitzer Prize winner, Mark Campbell. He's written the libretto to more than a dozen operas, including As One, this chamber opera about uh, a transgender character has found a lot of success. I'll say that uh, Campbell is a graduate of the theater program at CU Boulder, uh, earlier, you made reference to a story that really was something of a hook for you in uh, being involved in this project. And it, it had to do with a, a paper route. Hannah is wearing a blouse while she rides her bike and delivers newspapers. The blouse I stole from a neighbor's clothesline. It isn't much, but fits might well be rose gray. So in case you missed any of that, she's 
12 years old um, and tries on a blouse for the first time writing during the paper route. And the the great line there is the papers still get delivered, right? Like, no matter what Hannah is wearing. The world doesn't fall apart because someone chooses to um, realize their true gender. That's, mm. that's the message in, in the papers still get delivered. Uh, just a bit more about your background. One of your most recent operas was The Shining, an, adapta- yeah. <laughs> an adaptation of the Stephen King story about that family in an isolated hotel uh, King wrote the novel after staying at the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park. And um, what what made that horror story sound like it would work as an opera? The commission. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I'm joking. Um, when you read the novel, it's, um, it's, it's really very operatic. A lot of people's experience with The Shining um, is related to the movie. And I like the movie fine, but it is not the same story that Stephen King created in the novel. And um, we just – the composer, Paul Moravec, and I, who have, is also a Pulitzer Prize winner, we um, just read that novel and said, this would make a great opera. Minnesota Opera produced it. It was the biggest hit they've ever had. And uh, we're hoping that we get to bring it to Colorado at some point, bring it home, I guess. Right. Is there something about the success of that opera – being connected with, I don't know, what, like more pop culture that you think is a recipe for success? Sure. It's always been a recipe for success in opera. The greatest operas were, were based on um, novels that were already known to the public. I mean, you know, people came to Traviata knowing the story. They just waited for, the, for Violetta to die and do it beautifully <laughs> and hit all those notes. Um, it's, it's nothing new to be adapting popular work into opera. I mean, as one is an original story, um, it's based loosely on Kim's experiences. But I would also say that we're using a popular vernacular in telling the story. Uh, we really want to reach our audience. Uh, and we're not going to do that with pretentious poetic text um, or, or archetypes. We want to create a real person that an audience can identify with. Again, Kim is Kimberly Reed, uh, who is yep. your co-librettist. You attended CU in the early 70s. Uh, were you hoping to... Oh, thanks. You, you gave away my age. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> were you hoping to write lyrics when you studied theater there? No, I actually, and also I went to high school at Thomas Jefferson High School. I was vice president of the drama club, which pretty much sounds like a euphemism at this point. Um, and I went from uh, Thomas Jefferson High School. I lived on East Eastman Avenue and uh, went to University of Colorado, first in Denver the first two years because I couldn't afford to go away to school. And then the last two years were in Boulder. Um, I graduated there with a degree in theater and dance. I was going to be an actor. Um, I did a bunch of theater in Denver, Bonfils Theater. I remember even being directed by uh, a wonderful director named Beverly Newcomb. Um, And I um, graduated from college, took a side trip to New Orleans, lived there for a while, um, and then ended up in New York and pretty quickly discovered that I did not want to be an actor. I wasn't good enough um, and not even close to being good enough. a composer that I was dating at the time actually asked me to write lyrics um, for an, a musical that he was writing about the Romanoffs, a guy named Stephen Hoffman. Um, and I started writing musical theater lyrics. I loved it. I really loved it. But I have to say I wrote my first opera in 2002. A composer named John Musto asked me to write an opera 
Um, and we wrote a great opera called Volpone for Wolftrap Opera in D.C. And I have been hooked ever since. Ever since. And indeed, you're writing yep. the libretto now for an opera that will debut this summer about Steve Jobs, the mastermind behind Apple computers, to draw a, yep. Con- a yep. contemporary That debuts at Santa Fe in... Um, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, that debuts in Santa Fe in uh, July. I removed the blouse and hide it where it never will be found. Librettist Mark Campbell helped create the opera As One. We spoke in February. You can hear the full opera tomorrow evening at 7 on CPR Classical. Day, I'm braver and tough to rolled up socks inside the darts of the blouse what could be oppressed is gently grazed by my throwing are you happy with your life it's a question that plagues the protagonist in durango author blake crouch's latest book dark matter dives into alternate realities even quantum mechanics to explore the path not taken The book is now out in paperback. CPR's Nathan Heffel spoke to Crouch last August. Blake, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So your main character is a physicist named Jason Dessen, and suddenly his life is not his own. Tell tell us about him. Well, Jason Dessen lives with his family in Chicago. He is, I think, like a lot of us, happy but sometimes thoughtful about paths not taken. And we meet him one night as he's walking home, and he is abducted by this masked man at gunpoint, given this very mysterious drug. And when he wakes up, he's in Chicago, but it's no Chicago that he's ever seen. His wife is not his wife. In fact, he's never been married. He doesn't have a son. And instead of being this middling college professor teaching undergraduates the basics of physics, he is this world-renowned physicist who has created something incredible. You've said you've been working toward this book your entire career. Why? I have been fascinated by the science that underpins dark matter, which is quantum mechanics, going back at least a decade. But I, full disclosure, I am a English major, creative writing minor, (laughs) and I took as few science and math classes as possible in uh, college. So as much as I wanted to write about quantum mechanics, I was incredibly intimidated by how daunting the field of science is. And I just wanted to take as much time as I could to research and feel like I would have something profound to say about it without sounding like a total idiot. I think when you say quantum mechanics is the engine of a thriller, people immediately just fall asleep because what's quantum mechanics? It just talks about how particles behave at the subatomic level. But what, what I find fascinating about it is that particles at that level are, they appear to behave as if they're in multiple realities at the same time. And when you start to scale that up to our world and the ramifications of quantum mechanics at the macro level, in the world that we see. I mean, we're made of particles. And if particles of this fine level behave this way, are our lives actually an illusion? In other words, are we not existing in a universe, but in a multiverse, which is 
all possible realities and histories that are connected by this matrix of our choices. And when I, when I found some science that supported that notion, I got really excited and thought, well, yes, this is still going to be a speculative science fiction thriller, but there's actually some scientific breakthroughs that are happening that suggest maybe there is a multiverse. Well, let's talk about that multiverse. Uh, Your book dives into quantum mechanics, superposition. Uh, It even references the famous thought experiment Schrodinger's cat. Uh, Some listeners may not be familiar with that. So I found this little YouTube explainer, and it's pretty good background for your book. You put a cat in a bunker with some unstable gunpowder that has a 50% chance of blowing up in the next minute and a 50% chance of doing nothing. The gunpowder is Einstein's version. Schrodinger preferred poisonous gas. But whatever. So until we look in the bunker... We don't know whether the cat is dead or alive. And when we do look, it is either dead or alive. So if we repeat the experiment enough times with enough cats and bunkers and gunpowder, we'll see that half the time, Kitty survives. And half the time, Kitty goes bye-bye. The quantum mechanical interpretation is that before we look, the cat is in a superposition. It's both dead and alive. And our act of looking forces nature's decision. So our curiosity kills the cat. So how does all of this fit into your story? Well, in dark matter, instead of putting a cat in the box, I essentially put a human being in a box. Uh, I, I used the principles of this thought experiment, which was actually created to show how counterintuitive quantum mechanics truly is, the idea that something can be alive and dead at the same time. And I built a box that is a 12 by 12 cube, and it stops any sort of exterior stimuli from entering the inside of the box, and we call it destroying the quantum state or the wave function or the superposition. So in in other words, a man can walk inside the box, close the door, take this drug that shuts down the part of his brain responsible for observation, and essentially he is standing on the gateway to the multiverse. He is standing on the precipice of all possible realities. And it's visualized in this book as a long, infinite corridor, basically this box repeating off into infinity, with door after door after door after door, a a really chilling and and haunting image. But one I think is appropriate for considering the road not taken, because we often think of our choices as either a door we opened or did not open. Well, this kind of reminds me of Doctor Who and his TARDIS, which is a machine that can go uh, through different dimensions and times and things like that. Is this kind of what you're looking at? Is this your TARDIS? I've been told it is, although (laughs) I hate to say not a Doctor Who fanatic. Uh, But yes, I have been asked more than once if this is my version of the TARDIS. So I guess my answer would be yes. (laughs) <laughs> Question mark? <laughs> Question mark? <laughs> I, I'm going to have you read from the from your book uh, a point where Jason is in the box with Amanda, who's a therapist and a possible love interest from one of his alternate universes. Sure. Um, so they're sitting in the box uh, during this scene. The only physical sensations are the chill of the metal bleeding through my clothes and the pressure of Amanda's head against my shoulder. You're different than him, she says. Who, I ask. My Jason, she said. How so? Softer. He had a real hard edge when you got down to it. The most driven human being I've ever met. Were you his therapist, I asked, sometimes. Was he happy, I asked. I sense her pondering my question in the dark. 
what did I say? Am I putting you in a doctor-patient confidentiality quandary? She responds, technically, you two are the same person. It's new territory for sure, but no, I wouldn't say he was happy. He lived an intellectually stimulating but ultimately one-dimensional life. All he did was work. In the last five years, he didn't have a life outside the lab. He practically lived there. I say, you know your Jason is the one who did this to me. I'm here right now because several nights ago, someone abducted me at gunpoint while I was walking home. He took me to an abandoned power plant, drugged me, asked me a bunch of questions about my life, the choices I made, if I was happy, if I would have done things differently. The memories are back now. Then I woke up in your lab, in your world. I think your Jason did this to me. Amanda says, you're suggesting that he went into the box, somehow found your world, your life, and switched places with you. Do you think he was capable, I ask? I don't know. That's crazy. I ask, who else would have done this to me? Amanda is quiet for a moment. She says, finally, Jason was obsessed with the path not taken. He talked about it all the time. What do you think you can bring to the well-trod road of stories about alternate realities? Because we've heard this before. People go somewhere else, a different reality, different time. What are you bringing that's different? Two things, I think. A lot of the alternate reality stories I've encountered in the past were much harder science and didn't have at their core a human story. And Dark Matter, for all the thrillers that had written to date, is my first love story. That is the core of the story about alternate realities. And what I'm doing with the science in this book, it's not just a conceit to get to see other worlds and other versions of yourself. It's a, a serious exploration about the path not taken and the nature of regret and identity and reality. And I also think the third act of this book, when, well, I don't want to spoil too much, but I will say the third act of this book, I think, takes the concept to a level where I've never seen it taken before. And it, it's something I'm really excited for readers to experience. And I think that's a good point you made about the fact that there is science, but there's also heart in this book. Absolutely. I, I wrote this book for people who love science fiction. I also wrote this book for people who hate science fiction. I mean, I have a very love-hate relationship with the genre. Um, I have a hard time with spaceships and laser guns and characters who are just there to support a, uh, you know, a scientific conceit. What's most important to me is having characters who are relatable and whose lives in some way reflect our own and who remind us of all the things that we lie awake thinking about, you know, in the dark of the night and should I have done this? What if I hadn't done that? In a way, the sci-fi part of the book is truly just a means to explore what do our lives look like at the end of the road not taken. One reviewer called your book, It's a Wonderful Life for the 21st Century. What do you think of that? I love that. I really love that. I think that underscores what I was trying to do with this book, which is to imbue it with a real humanity and a profound love story. I mean, this book is ultimately about a man who, in middle age, has begun to question the choices that he makes. And so he is sent down this 
insane journey, which shows him what his life might have been like had he taken another path, had he opened a different door. But ultimately, it's about him trying to find home and what does home mean to him and questions like, am I living the best version of myself? Am I living the life I was meant to be living? And you know, by virtue of those questions, this epic quest to find home and the people and the life that you love. So it, it, it very much shares a beating heart with It's a Wonderful Life, although if Christopher Nolan had directed it. That is Durango author Blake Crouch speaking with Nathan Heffel last August. Crouch's book, rather, Dark Matter, is now out in paperback, and you can read an excerpt at cprnews.org. That's our program for today. You can follow me on Twitter at CPR Warner. Follow the show at Colorado Matters, and we are CPR News on Facebook. This is Colorado Public Radio News.